we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 21, but we recall now that with hammer blows to the conscience, Paul has exposed throughout what he's written so far the sin of those he's speaking to, and he's attempted to speak to everyone that he can think of. He has addressed the idol-worshiping pagan in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, There he's demonstrated that when they turned away from worshiping the true God to worship idols, their idols began to degenerate from the images of human beings to the images of beasts to ultimately the images of slithering things. And in the same way that their idols degenerated, so did their morality. And their morality ultimately led them to a place in which they were given over to beastliness and to a slithering depravity. They had suppressed the knowledge of God in the pursuit of their own unrighteous acts. Actually, take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 1. The outcome of this collapse into sin is given to us in verses 28 through 32 of Romans 1. Here's what we read. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. This is where Paul has brought them as he's been exposing the degeneration of the idol worshiper. But then Paul turns his attention and his address in chapter 2 to the moralistic Gentile, And they too, he tells them, are guilty and under the judgment of God. And finally, Paul turns to the religious Jew and tells them that they as well are under God's judgment because of sin. And along the way, they've offered their various protests and they've offered their various rebuttals. Paul has answered each of the protests, all the while keeping tension on this conviction, keeping a pointed reference point to this pronouncement that all of them are in sin and all of them are under judgment. He's not given in to their protest. He's not been distracted from the point that he's attempting to make. It's necessary for them that they see their hopeless situation if they're to turn to the gospel of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. And this is always the case. When you're dialoguing with a person in order to bring them to the gospel the first thing you need to do is you need to bring them before a holy God. You need to bring them in the presence of God, a God who hates sin, a God who is a powerful creator, the creator of all things. Actually, this pattern that we should have in our dialogue with lost individuals is the pattern that Paul is introducing us to because Paul is an evangelist and he's simply showing us and he's simply, in a sense, preparing the Romans for the manner and very way in which he wants to bring the gospel to them and with them bring the gospel to others, he's showing us his evangelistic heart and the message that he's been bringing to individuals and how it is that he's brought that to individuals. And you'll see in this dialogue with him that Paul starts with God and he introduces to the pagan and he brings into the reference of the conversation, he references them to God himself. Look at verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1. Here's what he says. 
What may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead. Paul then, as he's presenting them to God, goes on to present to them that this is the God that was to be worshipped, and this is the God who is to be glorified by him, by his creatures, and this is the God who is expressing himself and speaking to them, and this is the God whose communication and knowledge they are suppressing, trying to put from their minds in order that they might pursue their own unrighteousness. Point I want to simply make here is that if you're going to dialogue with individuals and you're going to bring them to the need of their salvation, you have to bring them first into the presence of God. When we're sharing our faith with people overseas or when we're training individuals and in, in how to share their faith, we encourage them that this is to be a conversation, it's to be a dialogue. We want them to know that God is up ahead of them, the Spirit is already working in that person's life. The Spirit is already at work convicting them of sin and righteousness and judgment. And as a result, there's a conversation they can have with them. But the conversation should begin with a conversation about God. Ask them questions like, do you believe in God? What do you think God is like? How would you describe God to an individual who had no knowledge of God? If they say no, was there a time in your life when you thought there was a God? What did you think of God at that point in time? Why did you stop believing in Him? Are there times still today in which you think maybe there is a God? What are those moments like? What's happening in your life when you have those thoughts? What comes to your mind? What do you think about when you consider the possibility that you could be wrong and there is a God and you bring God into the presence and you bring God into the conversation? Ask them questions like, do you believe God loves you? Ask them, in your own life, how have you personally experienced that love? Can you think of your own story where you have thought as a conclusion of that experience or that moment in your life that God loved you? What was happening then? You let them talk to you. You listen to them. Bringing God as a consideration into the conversation and you're turning up the light and as you turn up the light of God's presence, you know what happens is they begin to recognize their own sin and that's where Paul pivots to. He starts with God but then he he pivots in the conversation to speak to them about their sin. It's essential so that a person would recognize in the presence of God and then recognize their sin in the presence of God that, that God is just, that God is true, that everything their conscience has been telling them that they've been trying to ignore is also true. It's, it's important for them to understand this so that they begin to see not only their sins and the judgment of their sin, but they begin to see and recognize that they have no answers in themselves for their sins. That's what Paul has been doing through this whole section that we've been looking in, coming to the point we're coming to now. The moralist and the religionist were indignant at the description. They had this sense of indignation that was stirred within them as they were reading and considering the expression of what the pagan does in his degraded morality. And they think of themselves as being better, but then they didn't know that Paul was going to turn the tables on them and point out to them their own sinfulness. But that's exactly what he's done. He's done it very convincingly. And at every protest, he's given a strong answer without removing from them the sense of God's judgment that they themselves are facing. And at this point in the conversation, with all the rebuttals being put aside, they've conceded. They've been silenced before Paul. They've recognized their sin. They've recognized their deserving of judgment and justice. And they have no more answers for themselves. So we might think at this point in time, the nice thing for Paul to do, is now that he's kicked them down into the dirt, is to 
give a hand to pick them back up and begin telling them the gospel and give them some encouragement and it's now time to pivot into the good news because they have been willing to acknowledge now by their very silence there's a silent consent that what he's saying is true they're sinners they're all sinners the Jew is a sinner the moralistic Gentile is a sinner these idolaters are sinners as well and well we're all facing some manner of judgment from God now we'd say, okay, Paul, time to move on and press on to some heartier and lively conversation and hopeful conversation to them. But now that they're in the ground, Paul doesn't reach down to pick them up. He grabs a shovel and he begins digging a grave alongside of them so he can throw them into it. He doesn't ease up at all. He presses even further into what he said to them. He brings them all the way down. Jesus said, unless the seed falls in the ground and dies, it remains alone. And Paul has opened up the point now and he's going to drop the seed in and he's going to call them into death and he's going to cover them over under this condemnation. And so he has one more thing he needs to say to them. One more thing that he needs to press upon them. He's going to press them in even further so that what he says now in Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 20, what he says to them now is actually if you could imagine, worse than what he said as he followed the degeneration of the idolater, the pagan idolater. And he's going to put this label upon them, themselves. Not only have they acknowledged their sin, not only have they acknowledged now that their sin deserves judgment, but now he's going to show them that their sin is of the same quality, the same substance as that which he's talked about in the first chapter and even worse. So let's have our Bibles open now to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 21. Our focus will be on 9 through 20. What then, Paul asked, now that they've considered and he's answered all the rebuttals and they've come with all their questions and they've come with their questions. Well, what's the good and what's the advantage of being a Jew? And They've come up with other questions. You know, God, what if my unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God? How can God be just and condemning me? And they've come up with all these questions which he's answered very forcefully. Now Paul asks a question, what then? What now do we conclude? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They are all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none that does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they practice deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, is what we'll read in verse 21. You know, this morning I, was, I went around and took some photos of different sayings that have inspired us and we've put in calligraphy or they've been crotch-stitched and they've put in different places in our house. I've got one plaque that was made for us, given to me this last couple Christmases ago. It uh, represents a song that our family used to sing 
the opening line was, Be present at our table, Lord, be here and everywhere adored. Another one of the things I found over our piano is a, this verse, Walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, increasing in the knowledge of God. It's a really beautiful cross stitch. It's actually the last verse that our sister, who was killed in a car accident, sent to us in a letter just before she was killed. So that's right over my, my, my piano. Another little section there's painted on glass, a wonderful little old saying, and it says, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. A great, great things that you... Nobody has ever put the passage we have just read into cross-stitch. <laughs> it's not hanging in any house. It's not hanging over any piano. Nobody goes to it for inspiration or encouragement. <laughs> you know, it hasn't made it into the hall of fame of inspirational verses. There's not even a way to condense it into a ditty that would make you, you know, somehow put it down and want to remember it. It's not being memed anywhere. You'll never find a meme online of this passage of Scripture. And yet, Paul is bringing us to a conclusion in order to bring to us a powerful, wonderful, good word that we cannot receive in any other way than going through this passageway and going through the passage of these verses. A number of things I want us to observe here from our passage right away. And the first thing I want you to understand is that Paul is describing individuals in their natural state, what they are in and of themselves apart from anything that God will or God has done for them. And so as Paul comes to this point in time, he includes himself in the description Prior to this, as Paul is addressing their sin, he uses the word they. They do these things and they do these things. Or he even becomes more personal and says, you, you uh, moralist, you, O oh Jew, are doing these things. But now after having brought his indictment and now they've received it in silence, now that they're all knocked down before him, he says, we. To the religious Jew caught in the midst of the judgment of God for his sins, Paul steps in to identify himself with him. And says, are we, are we any better than anyone else? Are we any better than these Gentiles? Not at all. We have already concluded. In this case, I think Paul might see that the man has consented. It may be that Paul is speaking now apostolically. We have all concluded they're all in our sin. But it may be that he's granting that this man has come to this recognition. We have all concluded that we're all under sin. And so the viewpoint that Paul is offering here, including himself, is the viewpoint of a natural person, a natural human being, apart from God and the work that God would do in his life to transform him and change him. And that's the view we have here. Here's the second thing I want you to see here. Paul is describing this natural man under sin, under the power of sin, under the pervasive control of sin, and as a result, under the judgment of sin. And here's the third thing I want you to note, and this is where we're going to put our focus this morning. I want you to notice, I think we ought to see here that Paul's tone has changed. At least in my mind, I recognize that his tone has changed. I've asked individuals, by the way, if they believe they're sinners. By this time in my life, I know it's over a thousand times. I've only had a few individuals say no to me that they're not a sinner. Most individuals will acknowledge they're sinners, but you see behind what they're saying. Or if you ask them, well, how do you know you're a sinner? They'll point out to everybody else's iniquities around them, or they'll give up some little minor thing. I remember one lady telling me that she was impatient with her lazy husband, and that's how she knew that she was a sinner. So you have a little contesting here, a little conversation that has to take place. One man told me he wasn't a sinner, but he said, I, I don't have any sins. I said, you don't have any sins? Oh, no. He says, I just have vices. Well, what are your vices? Well, women, gambling, drinking, <laughs> And well, I have some news for you. Let's go back and 
take a deeper look at those things and we'll see that they're sins. So there's a little conversation that has to go to get them to actually acknowledge not only that they're sinners, but the significance of that sin and what that sin really means. And at some point in time, you might get a, finally a concession from them. And actually, you can tell when the Holy Spirit is really at work in your conversation because the fruit is a little bit riper and it will fall more easily into your hands and they'll acknowledge their sin and, and go into depth about it. One of our gentlemen who planted the church that Ignacio is visiting this week in Ecuador, Mark Schaefer, tells it was one of his first experiences in Ecuador sharing the gospel and going to a home where he had asked a series of questions and the woman was doing her laundry. At every question, she would just say, yeah, do you believe in God? Yes. Well, what do you believe about God? But she wouldn't answer his questions. She just continued washing the laundry. Do you believe that God loves you? Yes. Well, how do you know that God loves you? And she wouldn't answer. She would say yes, but then she would just keep washing. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. Well, how do you know? What makes you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? No answer. No response. No dialogue. That's what they were going for. That's what they were told they should go for. And they looked at one another because he was with a pastor from the city that he was working in, and they kind of said to one another, should we leave? Maybe she's not. Maybe we come at a bad time. She doesn't seem to be listening to us at all. And Well, let's continue asking the questions. The next question was, do you consider yourself to be a sinner? The woman's washing her clothes, and all of a sudden she stops, and she falls over the heap of her wet clothes and begins sobbing uncontrollably. Got spirits at work. He's convicting. He's dealing with her. Quick, rush in to tell her the good news. No, no, no. Now that they're aware that they're sinners, the tone might change now. Now it's we are. We're sinners. We can conclude that all of us are under sin. And now that you've seen that you're a sinner, we must go and look again We must begin to see ourselves not simply as we see ourselves. What you see of your sin is just the tip of the iceberg. It's just a little bit of the mountain peaking above the clouds, but below it is a a volume of sin that you don't recognize and you don't see that God sees. And for a moment, we have to be willing to go and and see what God sees in ourselves. I had this conversation with people at different times when we get to this point in the conversation. I say to them, now listen, I know you've acknowledged me that you're a sinner and you've mentioned some of the sins in your life, but if I could show you right now... A picture of what God sees in your heart and what God knows to be true of you in your sin. Would you want to see it? And I usually hold a a piece of paper up. Would you want to see it? And very often the answer is, oh no, we wouldn't want to see it. I said, well, here it is. I'll just lay it here on the table face down and I'm going to step out of the room for a little while. And you know what I think? In a little while, you'll go back over and you'll, you'll want to at least take a peek of it. Well, actually, let's just take a peek of it right now. Let's look at this passage, and I take them to Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, the one that we've just read. So now this is what God sees when he looks in your life. And I concede to you that you don't recognize that, and you don't see that, and and I must tell you that I don't see that either. I don't identify those things in my own life, but when God penetratingly looks at my life, this is what God sees as the substance of my being. I know you don't see it. If you were on a job interview and they had a little extra space on the resume, tell us a little more additional information about yourself. You don't write C, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, right? You don't see it, you don't recognize it, and you wouldn't want anybody else to recognize that in yourself as well, but this is what God sees. This is what God understands. So let's go back to this passage and look at it for a moment. What we see here is, The pause put together a string of Old Testament quotes, one after another. They come from Psalms, and they come from the book of Isaiah. They possibly come from Proverbs and Ecclesiastes as well. And 
First, what he gives us, it's kind of in three sections. And the first section gives us a general overall condition of all people who are under sin. The second section reveals that individual in their communications. And then finally, he gives to us a picture of that individual in their actions as God sees it. As God sees their general condition, as God sees them in their communication, as God sees them in their action. Generally and overall, this is what he says. They are not righteous. They have no understanding of God. They have no understanding of God and they have no true understanding of themselves before God. They don't know who God is and they don't know their condition before God. There's none that seeks after God to know Him or to glorify Him. They are, here it says, they are all unprofitable or worthless. And the word there is the idea of milk that's gone bad. Basically, they're only capable of producing things that are putrefied and rotten. All of them. And they don't do anything that is good. They don't do anything that is morally right, is what God sees. That's the general picture. And then... He speaks of what God sees in our communications. And uh, here he speaks of the throat and of the tongues and of lips and of mouths. And we understand something here. Remember the Lord Jesus said that it's out of the fullness of the heart that a mouth speaks. That this is revealing what is truly at the core of our being. What we're made of. We had as our scripture reading Isaiah chapter 6. In which again Isaiah sees himself after he sees God. After God is brought into the frame and has the view of the glory and the holiness of God in that moment, he has this crushing after effect of a view of himself. And Isaiah says, woe is me, I am undone. That means I am cut off for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I've heard different people expound this and say, well, Isaiah must have had a, a bit of a potty mouth. He must have had a little problem saying bad words. And no, no. Isaiah saw the nature of his own heart. He saw that out of his own heart it lined his mouth with that which was evil and sinful and unclean. He fell down before God in despair because of his sin, because of the nature. He saw himself as a man under sin and fully under its control. And So here we're told that what God identifies rising from the human heart is the stench of decaying corpses in an unclosed grave. He sees the smoothness of deceit in the mouth of an individual whose lips are concealing poisonous fangs that are ready to inject their poison to others. He hears the language of cursing and bitterness in all that they say. God says this is what emanates from the heart of all men under sin. This is what I see. And, and then next is revealed to us man and his actions. Bloodshed, murder, destruction, misery, Chaos or lack of peace, total turmoil. In this situation, we might see that what is being evoked are images that we could pluck out and we could go to any point in human history and we could see moments in which all these things are taking place. Total chaos, total turmoil, bloodshed everywhere, destruction everywhere, murder everywhere, misery everywhere. That has happened and the earth has periodically been in the seizure of violence because of the violence of men at war and all these different places. And we could go and take in our minds and we could go back to different scenes of conflict and war that are taking place now in different places around the world or that have taken place in times past. Say, oh, there it is. There's a picture of what Paul was talking about and what the word of God is talking about, the nature of man. But what Paul does is he takes these horrific scenes and he deposits it in one single human heart. 
in any individual, in the individual that he's speaking to, the very one who's conceded that he's a sinner, and said, ah, oh, here's where all that war rose from. Here's where all that turmoil and destruction and misery rose from. It rose from your heart. It rises from us. We, us, all under sin, it's a portrait of ourselves. And he caps it all with this. At the end of describing the pagan who has given himself up to degrading morality in Romans chapter 1, verse 32, you'll remember that it concludes with this, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Here, Paul says the exact same thing, but more succinctly. He simply says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. They're brazen in all these things. They're unflinching in their readiness to live in this kind of sin and to give themselves over to these things. This is what God sees at the heart of the human being. This is the condition our sin finds us in, in and of ourselves. This is how you will stand before God when you meet Him, if you meet Him as you are in yourself, in your own nature, and have nothing to go between. Now, I understand if you don't see this in yourself. I understand if you can't always identify this in yourself. I'll say this to another person. I appreciate that you don't see these things, but for a moment we must accept God's verdict. We must accept that He sees what you cannot see. I must tell you that because you can't see these things, you are not equipped and adequate to take these things from your life. You wouldn't want to be operated on by a blind surgeon. You would want the man who was operating and doing heart surgery on you to be able to see clearly what the matter was. You can't see it. God can. You know what it means? It means you can't save yourself. You can't save yourself. Only the God who sees you clearly in this way and is not prejudiced to think things better but knows the depth of your disease and your sickness and your sin, only that God can deliver you. Look at a few things here and let's note them quickly. Note how universal this is. None righteous, no, not one. None understands. None seeks God. All turn aside. All are unprofitable or spoiled. None does good. No, not one. It's universal. It's complete. I also say this, because it's universal, note also what an equalizer this is. No one has an advantage at the judgment seat. The pagan idolater of Romans chapter 1, the moralist and the religious of Romans chapter 2, all of them, all of them equally corrupt in their sin before the throne of God and before his judgment seat. And Paul says this, we are not better. Paul says we in that passage. And when Paul puts himself into this camp, you know what he does? He puts us in the camp as well. He puts Christians in the camp as well, in and of ourselves, just according to our own human nature. We are in the same place. We have no standing before God in ourselves. We can't go and appeal to what we've learned and what we've understood and what doctrines we've intellectually claimed or what things we've done in our performance behavior. We all, in and of ourselves, have the same standing before the throne of God No upbringing, no civility, no standing, no good standing in society. No good behavior can lift you from this view. You're all down at this point, all being cast into the same grave, all being cast under the same sentence at this moment in time. Now I want you to note something else here. 
I want you to note how this renders the individual completely incapable of producing good on their own. Look at the passage again. No one does anything that's good. Nobody understands. Nobody knows. This individual is a person who is in and under sin completely incapable. It appears by these words that we can produce in ourselves, in our depravity, only bad things. Only conduct that is counter to the way and will of God. And when we look at that, we kind of have to ask a question. If this is true, why are we not seeing more of this in our world today? It's not, if this is true, the question really isn't. You know, why is there war? and Why is there destruction? Why is there misery? The real question is, why isn't it happening all the time? You know, why isn't it exploding all over the place Why isn't the block being burned down and smoldering all the time? The answer is this. God restrains it. Our lives are a volcano of pent-up evil that is capped by the restraining power of God. And at any moment, if God should lift that restraint, it would bring about the greatest judgment we might ever realize. In fact, Thessalonians talks about a time when the restrainer will be removed and the man of lawlessness will be revealed. And from how I understand my Bible, the great tribulation will come in a great seizure upon the earth. And if you read what takes place during that time, in a span of less than three and a half years, half of the world's population dies and is destroyed. Well, what happened? God just took his hand of restraint off the nature which is in all individuals under sin and What explodes is an upheaval of the corruption that he's talking about here in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. But the fact is, when I look at this, I see then, okay, the evidence of restraint, but I have another problem with this passage to some extent, and I have to tell you, I went to different commentators to see how they answered it, and none of them seem to have the same problem I have. I don't know if it's just me, but but what about the evidence that we see that people are good? that people do good things. I've truthfully traveled to every continent but Antarctica and engaged individuals. I found tremendous nobility in their lives. These are people who don't believe and don't know Christ as Savior and have never come into the hearing of God's Word, and yet I've discovered that in all these places that people have some sense of God. There's some sense in which they have some knowledge of God that's true. Ecclesiastes 3.10 says that God has placed eternity in men's hearts. Paul is preaching in Acts 17, verses 26 through 27. Paul tells them that God has established the boundaries in which men have lived in in order that in those places they may grope for God and seek for God and perchance find God. What Paul was acknowledging to the Gentile was under their false religions was still this impulse, this true impulse that God was stirring up in them to search for God and to seek God and know Him. And so... This passage says no one seeks after God, and yet I've seen men seeking for God. And it says no one understands God, and yet I've seen individuals who have some rooted into understanding of God. And I've seen individuals who do good things and positive things in their community that are helpful. And Jesus said that you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. And I can attest that evil men know how to give good gifts to their children. We're not always at war. We're not always under the ruin and the misery of the ages. We do do things that bring advantages to others. We do do things that bless our communities. 
The person that Paul is speaking to in this passage doesn't seem to be asking these questions or giving these arguments. He's conceded to everything that God by his spirit is saying, but for a moment, let's ask those questions. What's the answer for that? What is the answer that we don't see evil all the time? What's the answer that we actually see evidence of good rising from men that are being described this way? This way by God. God has to be telling us the truth. What's the answer? The answer is this. God. God. God in goodness and love restrains and holds back the overflow of evil that resides in all of us. And at the same time that God restrains evil, God, and by His Spirit, constrains, coaxes, brings out from fallen, broken man, whispers of the good that He made in him when He created him in His image. If a man shows a sign that he's seeking for God, this is not evidence that in his own mental capacities and in his own natural capacities, he is tending towards God. No, in and of himself, he's running from God. He's ignoring God. He's suppressing God. It's evidence of a common grace whereby God is nursing and drawing him towards the truth. If a man demonstrates a right knowledge of God, this is not evidence that his natural theology is pure and unadulterated and that he's somehow intellectually come to conclusions all on his own. It's It's just a sign that God has graciously through his creation and through his witness and testimony of himself been making himself known to man. It's not the power of the man's intellectual bent. It's God presenting himself and communicating himself to fallen man, things that are true of himself, things that that man, the Bible says, Paul says, that man is suppressing, but it's still there because God is at work. God is there. If a person does what's good and kind and just and right in society... What are we to make of that? Well, I think we should consider that God is at work. In the providential orchestration of human life, God is always hovering over the world and the society that we live in, orchestrating and drawing up something in man of his own divine image and leaving room for it to play out. That's why we pray for our nation. That's why we pray for our leaders. That's why we pray for our community. Even if they're unsaved, even if they don't come to you, God, we know you can prevail in wonderful ways to nurse from them and what you've made in them and how you've created them something good and beneficial and right and just. God, restrain the evil that is within us. God, constrain and coax out from us the vestiges of good that still echo in the ruined temple of our bodies. And God does that. And God does that, and that's common grace. And that explains. That explains what we see and what we experience in the world around us. It is a testament. In light of what we've dread, it's a testament of the profound providential care that God has given in presiding over us so that in all these things, his goodness is seeking to lead us to repentance. I want to make a little bit of a correction about this in case you go too far with this idea. These expressions of good that we find in the natural man are not the same as the unleashing of the transformative grace that comes to the individual who repents of their sin and trusts in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's not the same as what's unleashed upon us when we become new men and new women and new creations by the regenerating work of Jesus Christ through faith in Him. At that moment in time, we have coming upon us and dwelling within us 
the saving and sanctifying power of God. We have the grace of salvation that brings the life of Jesus Christ into us by his Holy Spirit and then Christ lives out that life through his own goodness and through his own power and through his own righteousness. But what we're looking at here is how God still faithfully works to nurse from fallen men expressions of the goodness that he once created them in and that still lie within their very being. So God is able to coax or bring out the goodness and the miracle is it's in the midst of what we've just read. What we just read. That God can still draw out these good things and also the great miracle is although all of this is completely true we don't see the full expression of it because God, God restrains. God holds back the evil that's within us. Now, let's go back to this idea of the universality of all of our sins, that we're under the force and under the control of the sinfulness, something that we cannot fully see, something that God mercifully restrains. Let's make some conclusions, and this is what we come to really in verses 19 and 20, but we conclude it in this way. All that we've just read and what we consider simply means this. You are justly under God's judgment. God is right to judge you and condemn you for your sins. It means that there's nothing in you that you can do in your nature, in your own nature, that will take your sins away. It means that you cannot take credit with God for the good that rises from you. God coaxed it out of you. God constrained it out of you. It means you cannot take credit with God for the evil that does not rise from you. God was at work restraining it from your life. God mercifully was holding you back from the worst that you could do to bring destruction upon your own life and your family and your society. It explains why there's no answer for you in your sins and in your judgment in and of yourself. You'll have to completely die to the notion that you can do anything of yourself. There's any way out for you. It means there is a hope that must rise from a totally different place and a totally different person. It simply means that every mouth must be stopped of its self-defending, justifying words and all of the world must accept their guilt before God. It means that by the works of the law, no one will be right in the eyes of God. The law only proves how sinful you are. That's where Paul brings everybody. That's where God brings everybody. Now listen, it also means this. When you allow yourself by the Spirit of God to be brought to this point, it means that in the midst of this dark, dark, dark conclusion, you can appreciate the wonderful shaft of light and hope that comes piercing through when you read, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. But now... A righteousness is available for you. And you will not know how wonderful that is, how glorious that is, how hopeful that is, what a way of life that offers to you until you first fall completely under the indictment of God against your sins. You want to have this view of yourself. You want to have a view of yourself in this way. Paul actually called himself the chief or foremost of sinners. You know what Paul didn't say? Paul didn't say, I was the chief of sinners. Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. It's in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15. He says this, 
This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance or praise or embracing that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Now the gospel means everything. And now it's a source of great joy and great glory. And now it's the one thing we stand upon. So I have to tell you, I wrestle with the patches like this because I think, oh, it seems to be a little bit unfair. I don't know if I can convince people that this is actually what they're made of. I don't know if I can always convince myself of this is what I'm made of. I don't know if I want to accept the fact that any good that I've done was really not to my own credit, but God somehow coaxed it out of my own life by his own sovereign presiding. I'm a free will person. I came up with this on my own. No. Apart from the hand of God, what I would come up with on my own, what would rise from me, destruction, misery, death, cursing, bitterness, poison. God has held it back. God has held it back. God has coaxed from me, constrained from me, whatever good has come to my home and my family and my life. I have to accept it. I have to believe it. I have to bow before it so that then I can say, tis mercy all. Tis mercy all. The salvation that has come to me is all of the Son, Jesus Christ, dying in my place. Let me read to you, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, written by Charles Wesley. And just let me read to you some lines. You might recognize one of these, but the rest you won't recognize. We don't sing them, but they're actually in the song. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrow cease. Tis music in the sinner's ears. Tis life and health and peace. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Look unto him, you nations. Own your God, you fallen race. Look and be saved through faith alone. Be justified by grace. See all your sins on Jesus laid. The Lamb of God was slain. His soul was once an offering made for every soul of man. Harlots and publicans and thieves in holy triumph join. Saved is the sinner that believes from crimes as great as mine. Murderers and all you hellish crew come worship by my side. Believe the Savior died for you. For me the Savior died. With me your chief. Ye then shall know, shall feel your sins forgiven. Anticipate your heaven below and know his love is heaven. Come join me, the chief of sinners, and praise God for his salvation and the justice he provides. Let's bow our heads. God, we need to be instructed in these things because the tendency of our flesh still rushes to self-vindication. A belief resides within us that we were saved because you found something in us that wasn't in others. We have nothing to boast in ourselves. We have nothing to present before you now. But what you have here told us is there. Apart from your saving life, apart from your saving power, We are these things. But oh, we don't have to stop there, and we don't. 
We have looked to the Son who came sinless, perfect in every way, who died in our place, having followed completely all the laws and prevailed in utter and perfect righteousness. And he clothes us in his own glory and righteousness. We come before you sinners saved by grace, saints in the clothing of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by his redemption alone. And we find the joy of the but now of your word. We accept these things. And then we cling with all our might to the but now a righteousness apart from the law has been revealed. Jesus, you are our righteousness. We cling to you and claim you. In Jesus' name, amen.